Hello again, and welcome to the latest episode of our quarterly Board Dialogue with Ken Kaufman feature to our regular Governing Health podcast series. I'm your host, Michael Peregrine. We're glad to have you with us. In our dialogue, we like to tap into Ken's unique perspective on the healthcare industry, the trends it's facing, and possible solutions that Ken has identified for the vexing problems we face. And now as we're in the final quarter of 2023, we thought it appropriate to connect again with Ken and get his thoughts on the year to date and where he sees the industry going. For those of you who don't know him, Ken Kaufman has been one of the leading thinkers on healthcare strategy and finance for over 40 years. He's the chair of Kaufman Hall, a management consulting firm that he founded in 1985. Ken has helped healthcare organizations of all sizes with their most critical strategic challenges. He's also the author of seven books and hundreds of articles and has delivered more than 400 speeches, most recently focusing on healthcare's changing business model. And in 2019, he received the Richard L. Clark Board of Directors Award from the Healthcare Financial Management Association for Lifetime Contribution to Healthcare, the only consultant ever to be given this award. Well, Ken, welcome back to the program. We're in the last quarter of 2023, a lot's gone on, and we want to get your perspective on all of that and what we have left to see for the balance of the year. One of the things I wanted to chat with you about today, though, is that you've written a lot lately about what you call wicked problems in our industry, which I think is a fascinating term. What are wicked problems, and how do they help explain the current issues our hospital clients are having? Well, Michael, first of all, thank you very much for having me back on your program. I don't know whether this is the sixth or seventh or eighth or whatever, but I, I always enjoy it very much. And so thank you. So as, as we thought about, you know, the, the very great difficulties that hospitals are having in America right now, and it is a really incredibly stressful time, especially for those of us who have the perspective of, of a long history in the industry as you and I both do, that it's easier to, to wrap your arms around what's going on if you can find some kind of structural and theoretical perspective in order to organize your thinking. Just doing these things on the back of an envelope is, is really ineffective in the current environment, in my opinion. So I went back to, I had used this, this, this theoretical structure of wicked problems in maybe about 15 or 20 years ago and, 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 and really thought it was effective. And so when I was talking about this inside our organization, I, I said, let's revisit it. And the concept of wicked problems was developed by, in 1973, actually, by two sociologists, Horst Riddle and Melvin Weber. And it, it's really a, a great concept. And as I use it in my talks around the country, I find that people really find it very useful to think about the difficulties that they're having either at the board level or at the executive level. And unlike math problems, wicked problems have no single correct solution. And also for wicked problems, a solution that improves one aspect of a wicked problem usually makes another aspect of the problem worse, which really kind of describes where we are trying to run hospitals uh, on a go-forward basis. One of the most common examples of the wicked problem is poverty in America. And, and just to add to you know, how we've looked at this going forward, 
Riddle and Weber that Wicked Problems had five key characteristics. First, they're very hard to define. Second, it's very hard to know when they are solved. And we can, you know, revisit that from a board perspective because boards in general are very uncomfortable working with problems when it's not possible to know when you've actually found the solution. Potential solutions generally in wicked problems are not right or wrong. They're only better or worse, which is also kind of a, a governance issue of considerable significance. There's no end to the number of solutions or approaches of a wicked problem, and too many alternatives are very difficult from an executive perspective. And then finally, there's no way to test the solution to a wicked problem. Once implemented, those solutions are not easily reversible, and those solutions tend to affect many people in profound ways, which is certainly true in the hospital business right now. Well, Ken, it seems to me, first and foremost, with wicked problems, you've seemed to define the offense of the Chicago Bears and what they're struggling with. But I don't think that's what people want to hear us talk about this morning. What are the list? No, of- nobody wants us to hear it. Mentioned and the, uh, that's more the subject of systemic and historical <laughs> problems. Futility, uh, futility. I don't think that's a wicked problem. I think that's a, a problem of a different level of magnitude altogether. Historical magnitude, right? What, what, what if we had to drop a list on the chalkboard or the whiteboard of what the wicked problems are uh, that need to be understood by hospital boards? Where would you start? Yeah, that's great. That's the question of the moment for sure. And I'm, I'm going to put forward six. The interesting thing is that they're endless. If if you get in front of an audience, people can start adding to the wicked problems in in very rapid fashion. But let let me give you the six that I've been focusing on in my work. First, of course, is the financial instability of the industry. Second is the ongoing COVID labor disruption, uh, which continues on. There's just so many hospitals across the country that, that, that still don't have the technical labor that they need to really deliver the very best care. Third is the remnants of significant healthcare inflation. Now, we know we had significant inflation coming out of COVID. And we also know um, uh, that that inflation has, has improved over the last year or so with the efforts of the Federal Reserve. Um, but, uh, but, but hospitals were generally impacted uh, much more seriously by inflation. So inflation in, in from a general economic perspective was X, but inflation for hospitals was Y. So even though X is, has come down and Y has come down, uh, hospitals are still dealing with the nasty impact of, of, of inflation. Uh, fourth, we've got ongoing payer chaos, um, which which I think is emotionally and psychologically uh, you know, the, the, the hospitals are, are really uh, having a hard time coping with this. Fifth, uh, we're pivoting from inpatient to outpatient, uh, but this is happening at different rates uh, for different hospitals. So it's it's a general principle, but it doesn't impact all hospitals in the same way. And then finally, we have the endless introduction of alternative care options. Uh, which include, you know, uh, Walmart, Walgreens, CVS, Costco just uh, announced a program, and Amazon. And we spend a lot of time now trying to figure out how much um, all of those alternative care options are impacting hospitals 
at the moment. We don't really have databases um, to define that statistically, but I think most smart healthcare executives believe uh, that that those alternative care options are impacting the hospital business in a significant way. Well, one related question to that, Ken, and that's a fascinating list. I can see some experienced board members say, look, you know, we, we deal with that, with these same kind of wicked issues in one form or another in my day job. I, I, I or my fellow board members can play, it can be a real help to management in resolving these. How does management work with the board to keep them informed and engaged, but to make sure they, they're not micromanaging in addressing some of these wicked issues? Well, I, I think the intensity of communication and education is more important than ever. You know, Michael, from our previous conversations, I've always thought that many CEOs err in not offering as much board education as they really need to. A lot of CEOs are very conscious of how much time board members are spending, and they don't want to add to that. And so as a result, you know, they, they do, you know, the smallest amount of board education that they can. And when you have this kind of period that we're going through in 2022 and 2023, the, 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 the problems really change in, in, in terms of their importance and intensity. And, and you can't expect, you know, a board member to read an article here or there or go to a talk here or there, really understand the, the kinds of issues that the management team is facing on an ongoing basis. I think the management team gets the best board work when they take that board seriously and they say, look, we're going we're gonna to do as much education as we can. We're going to do internal education. We're going to do external education. We'll send you to conferences. Um, we, we'll help you out as much as, you, as you're willing to help us out. And so then when the big questions come up and the tough board meetings come up, you've got an educated board that can handle those conversations. You don't have to start at the beginning. They know what you're talking about and they know the difficulty of the issues that you're putting before them. Well, let's take one of those issues and the ongoing financial crisis in the healthcare industry. How would you encourage management to brief the board on the, the industry's current financial position and what kind of metrics would you point them to, to help explain that? So in 21, in some miraculous way, as we went through COVID, the, the industry actually performed pretty well. A lot of that may have been CARES money, but by and large, hospitals did much better financially than they expected. In January of 2022, the financial condition of the industry sort of fell off the cliff, and we suddenly had on a median basis across the industry an operating loss in that month of January of 4.1%. Um, it stayed negative right through February of 2023, and we didn't get medium uh, median uh, profitability in the industry until the first month of March of 23, and that's improved as we've gone through 23, so we are bouncing back, but it hasn't bounced back at the pace and at the level that you would have expected given the intensity of the efforts that hospital executive teams are putting into trying to recapture um, some much better financial condition. It's very important for board members to understand this. Now, this is not true. Some hospitals are, are, are still doing okay, 
However, all hospitals are generally doing worse than they were doing on a pre-COVID basis. So if you look at, I don't know, I don't know 70, 80 percent of the hospitals across the country, and you looked at where they were in 2019 and where they're in 2023, almost every hospital, even if they're not losing money, they may have been making an operating margin of 3% or 4%, and now they're only making an operating margin of 1.5%. So everybody is, has been harmed in some way. And then the key metrics include looking at the revenue percentage changes and the expense percentage changes over time. It's important to do this for an industry as a whole, but also very important for board members to understand what's happening in their particular institution. So let me sort of give you... Between 2022 and 2021, in America's hospital business, inpatient revenue increased 0%. Now, I'm pretty sure, I've been working in this business for 45 years, I'm pretty sure you could go back to every comparative year over the last 45 years and you would never see that number, that inpatient revenue increased by zero. Outpatient revenue increased by 8%, but then total expenses increased by 7%. So net operating revenue between 21 and 22 increased by 2%, but total expenses increased by 7%. Total labor expenses increased by 9%. So when you see those metrics, and you can, you know, we find those metrics and we we provide those metrics on on, on, uh, uh, from a total uh, hospital industry basis, but I think it's very important for the CEO and the CFO to be developing those numbers and showing those numbers on a comparable basis to their board on a month-to-month basis. So the board understands just how difficult the operating conditions are for their organization uh, as we head into the fall and winter of 2023. What's that communication like between the CEO and the CFO and the board on a topic you and I have discussed quite a bit over the last year, and that's the crisis between regulation and the need for hospital scale? Well, yeah, this is an ongoing issue. It's This has been developing now for the last 10 to 15 years. It's, it's, it's gotten much more intense as the FTC is, you know, is in its, its final last two years of the first Biden administration. We have, a, in general, a very hostile regulatory environment as it relates to hospitals. As a result, There are many hospital transactions, partnerships and consolidations, mergers, different transactions that should be done from a macroeconomic perspective. And if you evaluated them just from a macroeconomic perspective, they would be getting done. But in many cases, they're very hard to get done because of the overall hostility of the Federal Trade Commission and in some cases, the Department of Justice. So we need a bigger hospital industry. And we need a number of hospital organizations around the country that have real size and therefore have the kind of profitability and cash flow and capital capacity that allows them to compete with the CVSs and the Walgreens and the Amazons uh, and the Walmarts on a go forward basis. And right. And not to mention, you know, the United Healthcare's of the world as well. Uh, which is now a $300 billion-plus organization. And so as a result, these organizations, these competitors on the alternative side uh, continue to get bigger and bigger, and hospitals on a relative basis continue to get smaller and smaller from a relative point of view. And so it's not a fair competitive fight. 
So we, we do have a situation where regulation is hostile to the scale situation, but that doesn't match up well with the macroeconomic requirements of what we see in the overall marketplace. Ken, as we talk right now, we're in a little bit of a spike on COVID, but we both know that that notwithstanding, management and the board need to be looking at post-COVID strategy whenever that might be kicking in. What would your recommendations be in terms of management's briefing to the board on what that eventual post-COVID strategy might look like? Well, first of all, I think the management needs to get its own religion and then and then and then proselytize that religion to the board. There actually needs to be strategy. So, you know, Michael, you know, you talk to a lot of CEOs. I talk to a lot of CEOs, and many of them will admit that one of the casualties of COVID was the was the strategic direction of many hospitals in the country. So, I had one prominent. Uh, CEO in the Southeast tell me that post-COVID, there was basically nothing left of their strategic plan. Um, And so in that regard, you know, hospitals are, you know, they're they're trying to figure out, you know, what do we do first and what do we do next? And so they're trying to recover their profitability, especially if they wind up losing money post-COVID and they're still losing money. But at the same time, you have to have some sense of a strategic direction. You have to develop that strategic direction, um, and then you have to communicate that to the board. And you have to decide how aggressive you're going to be. So many CEOs says, well, you know, our, our boards, what they really want to do when they see these kinds of financial results, they want to hunker down. But what does that mean for our future? If we don't have a strategic plan and it's not relevant and it's not valid and it's not well thought through and it's not fundable, where are we going to wind up in 2025 and 2030? And where are we from, you know, from a competitive point of view? So I think, you know, you know, our our position, my position is, is that obviously you have to be careful um, given balance sheets and operating position. But but you've got to be thinking about the future and you've got to be investing in the future. You just can't stop doing that or the results will probably wind up speaking for themselves. Well, the boards are going to start pressing management on that issue. Of that, I have no doubt. But are there some key strategic definitions, Ken, that make a difference as the board and management revisit the strategic plan? What would you have them focus on? Yeah, I think there are four strategic definitions that are, that are very important. Um, the first is vision. We probably need a whole new vision for many organizations. And 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 the vision for a hospital is, is very, you know, that's probably one of the most difficult things right now. I, what I've suggested to a number of our clients is, is that you do a survey among the key management team members and all of the board members. And you basically ask them to write in no more than two or three sentences, what is the current vision of your hospital organization? And then take all those sentences and compare them and see whether there's a consensus from a management perspective and a board perspective of what the going forward vision of the hospital is. And I bet that most hospital organizations would do that, would find that there is very little consensus right now coming out of COVID of what the vision of the hospital industry is and what the hospital in America needs to be over the next 10 years. I think in general, 
our healthcare organizations, our hospital systems are very confused about what the vision is for the future of healthcare from a provider perspective. Then secondly, the second strategic definition is strategic work streams. And that's the ways you come up with to achieve the strategic vision. And then you need goals and goals are the leg outcomes that you seek to achieve for your customers. And then metrics finally, and metrics measure the progress towards those goals so that you and your you, the management team and the board know whether you're making adequate progress towards those goals. And if you're not making adequate progress, you can go back and either revisit those goals or revisit the strategic work streams. Well, let's go back. I'm a, a vision guy. And I'm curious if, if the board is saying we're look, we look to management for the vision, what would be the most critical vision observations that you would think management would share with the board in that regard? Yeah. So, you know, you're talking about creating a vision that relates then to actionable strategy, because if, if it's not that way, then you're, you're not going to make any progress. First of all, the vision should drive growth. I think, as you know, Michael, there are many, many hospitals in, our, in America now that are not growing at all. And in our economic condition, when growth stops, then, you know, the financial levers and buttons become much more difficult to work with. The reason that many hospitals and, you know, in, in the Southwest are, you know, continue to do fairly well is because is because the population growth is so significant in that area of the country. But we have many areas of the country where there is no population growth anymore. And so you have to figure out how to develop organic growth, which definitely is is a, is a hard business question. And then you need to differentiate your business from your competitors. You need to solve basic customer problem or problems. And we have many, many customer problems in, in, the, in the hospital space. The vision needs then to be either incremental or transformational. And the board needs to agree on that because if it's incremental, it's going to have one level of financial resource requirements. But if it's transformational, the financial resource requirements are going to be much higher and the board needs to agree to that before everybody launches forward towards a transformational vision. And before we let you go, and this has been a fabulous conversation, especially for our listeners who are preparing for the fourth quarter of the year, uh, I want to get your your view on something that you and I have talked about from time to time and have had concerns. And that is this, uh, this theme from third parties, from the media, from um, particular uh, elements of uh, uh, political groups from unions and others that have been very critical of the not-for-profit hospital sector and their uh, ability to support tax-exempt status and the fact that they're they're not essentially holding up their part in the social bargain. And we've seen so much criticism of that perhaps over the last year, year and a half in congressional hearings. Where is that headed? And are, is the hospital industry taking that seriously enough? Yeah. So you know, we have we have the the, the media problems, and um, you know, we have a number of of foundations across the country that that are supporting these attacks financially. We've seen very difficult articles from the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. We also see on a more uh, local basis. Uh, attacks from the left wing of the Democratic Party, but also amazingly 
the same kind of attacks from the right wing of the Republican Party. So for many hospitals in this regard, there's nowhere to hide. I think for a while, the hospital industry was with the hospitals and their, and their and their supporting organizations were just sort of hoping this would go away. And they thought, you know, gee, we were the ones who ran to the danger during COVID. You know, so many other constituencies in America ran away from the danger, but we ran toward the danger. Our nurses and doctors and even our administrators put their life on the line. And the thanks we're getting for that is attack after attack after attack. I think finally in the last six to seven months, the hospitals uh, and the American Hospital Association have decided to take this really seriously and are now fighting back in a completely different way. The AHA now has a whole program that every time there is a negative comment, either from a foundation or from the media or from a politician, they answer it immediately, not in two weeks or four weeks, but really that same day or the next day through blogs and commentary. And they put that out very widely. So I think in general, we still have this problem. I don't think it's going to go away. Uh, I think there, the, the level of hostility runs deeply, both politically and, and, and from other organizations that just for their own particular reasons don't like America's hospitals. But I feel much better right now than I did 90 days ago or 120 days ago about uh, how we are fighting back on, on this front. So, Michael, we've now come to my most favorite part of our, our mutual podcast, and that's where I get to turn the tables and ask questions to you. So the, one of the questions that I've really been thinking about pretty intensely lately, which I know fits right to your expertise, is, is, I, is I know you, you've just been interacting with, with boards and CEOs and chief legal officers, and what are you finding that the most significant corporate governance concern that you and your clients have encountered to date in so far in 2023. Ken, it's interesting that you asked me this today, because as we're taping this today, the National Association of Corporate Directors is releasing its report on boardroom culture. Without a doubt, unequivocally, the, the number one issue that I've seen in, in almost every boardroom that I've been working on this year is a split or a chasm or a disagreement in the board between the board management as to their roles, the, the board management dynamic. And I guess in a sense, it's it's a logical progression of all the various pressures that you were talking about earlier in our conversation today. Much greater pressure on management to perform in this extremely difficult financial environment and much greater pressure on the boards in, in a legal environment, which is much more critical of, of board performance and, and placing much greater emphasis on the level of board engagement. So when you have the vice squeezing both sides of the discussion towards each other, it's only natural to see confusion and perhaps disagreement and friction as to what role is does the board play and what role does management play? And without a doubt, that has become a, a flashpoint in many boardrooms that I have seen. Uh, management not really truly understanding and sensitive to the role of the board as it's playing out under the current legal environment, which is, again, much greater engagement. Uh, and, and the board uh, not being sensitive enough 
in exercising and responding to that greater engagement to the proper role of management and where does good governance end and micromanagement begin. It's interestingly enough, it is an issue which was raised by NACD in the report that came out today as we're taping, again, that they see very clearly this, the potential for great conflict in boardroom, conflict and friction as the boards and management all struggle as to who does what. It's not necessarily a right-hand, left-hand thing. And ultimately, I think it's a it's a failure of both parties to understand and appreciate and respect the role of the other parties and to understand that things have changed so much in the last five years. Ultimately, it's worth a good Saturday or Sunday conversation in a casual setting between the board and its management team and thrash it all out. Without a doubt, that's the biggest issue I see. Well, I I think that, um, you know, that situation breaks down in this kind of circumstance. So, so what do we, you know, what are the, 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 you know, the really the two issues that that have that have become most to the forefront uh, during COVID on a post-COVID basis? The first is the financial integrity of the organization, and the second is the clinical integrity of the organization. And many boards were used to the fact that their management teams had seemed to have very good control over um, over. The, the the financial the, the the fiscal integrity of of the business and and also that the board could feel very proud of the clinical work that was being done and as we went through covid you know many organizations as i as i said before um had a um you know you know had a breakdown financially many organizations that had not lost money in 25 or 30 years lost money in 2022 I think that was a great shock in the boardroom. and But most importantly, and if you talk to the more honest CEOs around the country, they'll tell you that, that, that really coming out of COVID, they were very concerned uh, about their ability to deliver the same level of clin- clinical quality and clinical work in their hospital that they had been able to deliver before then. And I think many board members noticed this, um, and um, uh, and and so the reaction becomes, uh, what just happened here? Um, and you could blame the externalities, but I think in some boardrooms there's a tendency to blame the management team and to blame the organization. At which point, the board starts to ask itself outside the boardroom when people are meeting for dinner and cocktail parties. Should we be more involved? Um, do we need to do more now because management does not seem to have full control over this situation? And those situations need to be corrected and corrected fast. And I think the the ultimate answer to addressing those is, as I said before, much greater sensitivity on the part of both groups to what the other is responsible for and how those roles have changed in the COVID environment, because the legal environment has changed not because of COVID, but during the COVID period. So now we're talking about a much greater, uh, uh, much greater emphasis on the role of the board and their duties and, the, and their expectations. And at the same time, but that is putting perhaps undue pressure by the board on management. And they've just got to have that conversation. We're not, this is not 1995. It's not 2005. It's not 2015 in terms of the board management dynamic. 
So maybe we should plumb that issue a little bit more when we get back together in January. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think this is, a, again, as you asked me earlier in the conversation, this is a communication and education thing to a great extent. If the board doesn't really understand the details of what's going on, if they don't understand the, both the macro environment of, 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 of the marketplace, but also the micro environment of a hospital, um, I think that, that the board can stray and, and, and wind up finding their way into places that, that it's not that helpful. That and they, not appreciated either. Yeah, and not, and you can see this in the in the increase in uh, in um, uh, resignations and retirements. Uh, you know, without a doubt, we are seeing some very distinguished hospital CEOs retire before their time. You know, people come to me and say, "Yo, so and so just announced his retirement." I thought he would was very willing to work until he was sixty seven or sixty eight, and these people are, are bailing at sixty one and sixty two now which is very difficult because it's not clear that we have the depth in the bench to replace some of these people who are going out earlier than we expected. That's the that subject of CEO retention and staff retention is another subject we can pick up again in January. It's critical. We have, we have endless things to talk about, Mike. Thank you, Ken, as always. We'll, we'll wrap that up on a, that positive note, uh, which is, is important. And we thank you, Ken, again, for joining us. This is always uh, one of our most popular podcast episodes. And we'll ask you to come back at the beginning of the year uh, as and we kind of fly spec what you see going forward for 2024 after uh, we wrap up the fourth quarter of 2023. Thanks always for having uh, coming and sitting down and having this conversation. It's a ton of fun. Thank you, Michael. I really love doing this. You know, this is absolutely one of my favorite things. And um, and I look forward to uh, many more opportunities to talk to you. That'd be great. Ken Kaufman, thank you so very much for joining us today. Thank you. Ken Kaufman has shared with us an important perspective on the key issues, the wicked issues that should be receiving board attention in the near term. He's also provided meaningful commentary on how boards should approach their post-COVID strategy. And in doing so, he's given quite a bit of suggestions for future board management discussion on these issues. With these points, he underscores the evolving and growing role of the healthcare director and the challenges and opportunities board service offers. For some directors, it might not be what they envisioned when they agreed to join the board, but for others, it may be every bit the challenge they hoped it would be, as Ken has pointed out. Thanks again for joining us for today's Dialogue with Ken Kaufman feature. We hope you'll join us again for future podcast episodes and for our regular Governing Health show. Until then, I'm your host, Michael Peregrine, saying thanks so much for listening. This material is for general information purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice or any other advice on any specific facts or circumstances. No one should act or refrain from acting based upon any information herein without seeking professional legal advice. McDermott, Will & Emery makes no warranties, representations, or claims of any kind concerning the content herein. McDermott and the contributing presenters or authors expressly disclaim all liability to any person in respect of consequences of anything done or not done in reliance upon the use of contents included herein. Copyright 2022, McDermott, Will & Emery. All rights reserved. Any use of these materials, including reproduction, modification, distribution, distribution or republication without the prior written consent of McDermott is strictly prohibited. This may be considered attorney advertising. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome.